You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. This morning. Okay, well, today I'm wrapping up the final leg in our current series. We've been in this series all May. We're wrapping it up today. The series has been called Money Over Value. Money over value. I'm sure many of you are quite relieved that this is the last Sunday uh, where I'm going to be talking about all that Jesus had to say about money and finances and generosity. Some of you have been waiting to like invite your friends to church until this series is over. It's over this Sunday. It is over. You can invite your friends uh, and you won't have to feel so stressed about it. No, but I, I've heard from others that this has been a refreshing a transparent, even a challenging way to talk about money, and I'm so thankful that's been your experience because it's definitely been our prayer that you would experience God through the scriptures in that way. You know, I recently got an email from someone in the church about this series, and it was an 81-page research paper written by UC Berkeley titled The Science of Generosity, and it was fascinating. Like, I loved it. If you like to nerd out on that kind of stuff, send me an email. I'll send you the 81-page research paper because it was filled with all kinds of different fascinating studies on how living generously changes your life. And that was essentially the summary of the 81-page research paper, that living generously actually changes your heart. I, I love when science and faith work together or science like magically discovers something that God had preordained long ago. 81 pages about the physical benefits, physical benefits on to, to your body when you live a generous life. 81 pages on how morality and generosity tend to grow together, how giving increases your happiness, makes you easier to work with. And one of my favorites was that when you live generously and give abundantly, your brain releases all kinds of hormones and dopamine receptors in your brain go crazy. Like all of the same hormones that are released during enjoyable and pleasurable activities. If you can let the hearer understand, same dopamine hormones are released when you live generously as other enjoyable activities. We'll talk about just one of those activities today. I can promise you that. But anyway, here we are, that wrapping up this series with our final message. Some of you didn't get that. You're going to have to actually watch the replay because it just went over your head, but it's okay. We're going to move on. Final series, final sermon in this series, this title or this message is titled, Money Over Love. Money Over Love. In our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives, we will be tempted from time to time to choose money over love. I'm going to open with a passage that I taught a few weeks back. This is uh, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. You cannot serve God and be enslaved 
to money. Notice there are no qualifiers in that passage. There are no workarounds. There are no exceptions to the rule. Jesus simply states you cannot love or you cannot be devoted to both God and money. Now, it's, it's very rare that I meet someone who openly admits that they love money more than God. Church folks tend to hide those kinds of confessions from pastors. But what's more common is that as we share life and as we open up to one another, and I learn a little bit more about patterns and behaviors and lifestyles, I begin to pick up on maybe small inklings or leanings of how our heart does. It is like a pendulum. And every now and then we sway towards money, sometimes even to the detriment of our loving relationship to God. This rarely happens overnight. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning saying to themselves, you know what, I, I am finally going to ditch God. I'm just going all in on money. Like that's, that's going to be my MO from here on out, right? But in the most extreme cases, money can become our God. Money can become our God, and if not our God, it could become our Lord. It can become our master, and all of a sudden, it's more demanding, and it's starting to make our decisions for us, and we're responding to the way that money wants to enslave our lifestyle, and all that we're left with is the anxiety and the stress in its wake. That's why occasionally hearing messages on money and generosity is so important. Digging into the scriptures on what Jesus said on these topics are important so that we can invite God's word and his presence to sharpen our hearts, to remind us what true life in the kingdom looks like. So one more time, once again, the words of Christ, you cannot love both God and money. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. I mean, this verse, Matthew 6, 24, this is the crux of this entire series we've been in. Who will you love? Who will you serve? And who or what are you going to be devoted to? You know, the juxtaposition of loving God or money, it, it really impacts our entire life. It impacts all kinds of relationships. And so as we work our way through this message this morning, we're going to look at a, at a couple of different relationships or a couple of different loves that, if we're not careful, can be impacted by our love for money. First, we're going to look at how some choose money over love for ourselves. Instead of loving ourselves and caring for ourselves and, and maintaining healthy balance in our own mind, heart, soul, body, that we choose money over ourselves. You might be tempted or, or struggle. Some of us have gone quite far down the road of loving money over ourselves, and it has cost us. It's cost us. It's cost you stress. It's cost you anxiety or mental health, or in the most extreme cases, this is where we see like a midlife crisis, which can cost you both literally and figuratively. And we know that we should never choose money over our own health. We, we know the right answers in our head, but money is a tricky thing. It can sneak around the edges of your heart. It can begin to woo you one way or the next. And over time, it will slowly demand more and more and more of your heart. And then one year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, you look back and you say, how have I gotten here? 
What has happened that I would land in this place? Why do I always think about money? Why do I lie awake at night trying to balance my checkbook when I know nothing's changed? Why have I pulled out my phone and looked at my bank app five times today, hoping that somehow the balance would increase or the bills would decrease when I've done nothing to make a difference? How have I gotten here? Like I said, this usually doesn't happen overnight, which also means that if you want to change, it's probably not going to happen overnight as well. But the secret, at least the secret for many of us, It's not found in checking your bank account on your phone less. It's actually by increasing contentment with where you are today. It's by increasing contentment with where you are today. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says it this way, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In Hebrews 13.5, you see these two ideas working almost against each other, love for money and contentment. They're coming up against each other, and you read, actually, that contentment is a great antidote to the love of money. And in a lot of ways, your varying levels of contentment in terms of where you're at financially will begin to describe how much you love money. It's not always a perfect linear relationship, but if you lack contentment around finances, it should be a spotlight to a love for money that might be bubbling or even overflowing in your heart. It could manifest itself by finding, when you find yourself craving more money and more possessions and wanting to accumulate and consume more and more and more. But the opposite could be true. It's still a sign of discontentment if you live in fear that there's never going to be enough or that God won't provide for you or care for you. Both of these things are actually pointing out an area that needs to be healed within your heart. According to scriptures in Hebrews 13, 5, contentment is a key ingredient in your ability to have money without loving money. God may give you more, and you can be content. God may give you less, and you can be content. Because contentment will help you live this stress-free life when it comes to finances. If you can't find that level of contentment in your lifestyle, you'll end up doing crazy things, right? I can speak with incredible credibility behind this because I have done crazy things when I've struggled with contentment. I have gotten caught up in the demands of money. I've let it sway me off of a centeredness on Christ. When I worked in sales, it was 100% commissions, and so you got paid for what you provided and what you produced. And in that season of my life, man, there was always one more sale I could make. There was always one more network I could explore. There was always one more competition that I could win in sales. And what it did was it created this striving sense within me where it was always go, 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 earn more deals, make more sales. I'd leave before the kids were awake and I'd come home after they were asleep. I remember being vigilant about taking a Sabbath day or taking a day off, but I was worthless to my family because I was so exhausted from the previous work week. I wasn't the kind of husband that I wanted to be. I wasn't the kind of dad that I wanted to be. I wasn't the kind of man that I wanted to be. I thought about quitting, 
and just moving on, but I realized that with my personality and I realized that with my wiring that actually quitting and going to another job wasn't going to solve anything. I was just going to take that same striving to the next job. What I needed to do was I needed to learn how to be discipled in the midst of that position. And so I had to do the hard work of setting limits in the midst of my job instead of just running to a new one. And I realized like in this room and online, all of our personalities are not the same. This sounds like a foreign language to some of you, but this is part of who I am as part of the brokenness in me coming out. I had to do the hard work of setting limits, of learning to build contentment. And I had to do the hard work of trusting God and trusting that when he said in Hebrews 13, 5, that he would never leave me nor forsake me, that it also meant he wouldn't leave my, or, or leave my bank account or forsake my bank account, that he would provide for me and make sure that I had enough for my family as well. And so I ended up taking less sales calls. And I ended up meeting with my manager, and with his permission, I even took a few afternoons off. And it was hard to do. I mean, it was really hard to do, partly because of my wiring, partly because of my brokenness, but also, remember, it's 100% commission. So if you didn't work, every time I didn't take an appointment, it felt like opportunity lost. But all of a sudden, I realized, man, I'm not as burned out as I once was. I started that job, and I was like solely focused on my sales and on my numbers, but I finished it with a focus on my discipleship in the midst of my job. And it changed my life. Limits helped me discover contentment, which has changed my life. If you're looking for something radical to consider this morning, then there are some who I'm connected with that I know they have set limits on their income. And it's countercultural, and I realize that it's probably not going to be for everyone, and that's okay, but there are people that I know who plan their budget, and once they reach a predetermined income, they give the rest of it away. They make a budget, and once they hit that predetermined number, it's not a moving target based on how you feel month to month. They said at the beginning of the year, and once they hit that target, they give the rest away. Their budget includes giving. It includes savings and investments. It includes fun, even vacation. But once they hit that mark, they give the rest away. There are others that I'm connected with who try a more hybrid approach. They, they give 10% of their income up to a certain point, and then anything they make above and beyond that, they just give more than 10% on that remaining amount. They give 20 or 30 or sometimes even 40% on everything they make after a certain Points. It's almost like a progressive giving approach. And I've loved that idea because these self-imposed limits will build contentment within your lifestyle. They'll build contentment while still encouraging radical generosity, while still encouraging radical generosity. See, contentment is so vital to our lifestyle. It's so vital to walking with God and loving Him and loving ourselves because otherwise we'll just consistently live in that anxious space of finances and money. So that's the first point, that money can impact you, that you can begin to choose money over loving yourself. But if you pull that thread a little bit more, you also see that money and your love for money can sometimes impact your love for others. That if you begin to lean towards money too often or too much, that it can impact 
how well you can love the people around you. The story of my sales job, if you think about that, of course, it, 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 excuse me, it impacted me. It affected me. But you know it affected my family, too. It impacted my family. I paid the price in stress and anxiety. I paid the price in long hours and constantly working. But my family paid the price because I was a tired dad. I was a tired dad who worked too much. And this can happen for all of us. If we're not careful, we can choose money or earning more and gathering more and striving for more to maybe maintain our lifestyle or increase our lifestyle at the cost of those closest to us. Natalie and I will occasionally do premarital counseling for couples who are dating and they want to get married. And when we do premarital counseling, we always talk about well, we talk about everything. We talk about all the good topics, right? We always, but specifically, we tell them on the front end, hey, if you're going to do this with us, I just want you to know on the front end, we're going to talk about the big three, communication, sex, and money. We're going to talk about those three things because the enemy wants to attack those things, and he will to attack those things to try to destroy your marriage. And so we're going to talk about, I just want you to know on the front end, you can choose if you come to the next appointment or not, but we're eventually going to talk about these three things. We get to know each other pretty well in those, in those meetings. But this is the reality. If, if we don't talk about money, if we don't figure out money in relationships, sometimes we can begin to choose money to the detriment of those that God has placed in our lives. And I was thinking about how many grandparents have kind of put their arms on my shoulders and looked me in the eye and say, Jeff, it goes way too fast. Enjoy these moments. Right? I've heard that so many times. Parents, how many times do we need to hear that before we take it seriously? How many times do we need to hear that before maybe we take an afternoon off? Or we create a fun activity? Or we spend time intentionally with our children? Because we don't want to repeat that same story, oh, I wish I would have taken more time off. Because it goes way too fast fast. And I'm not saying ignore your responsibilities. I'm not saying ignore your job. We all have things to do. We all have responsibilities to keep. And actually being a hard worker gives God glory too. And it's a testimony that you also want in your family. But if we're not careful, the pursuit of money will cost us the relationships that are closest to us. Of course, the pursuit of having more impacts our family relationships, but it also impacts us from giving to those in need around us. If we have a constant craving for more and more and more and padding our bank accounts, it's harder to give it away when people are around us in serious need. And the Bible has some strong words about that kind of reality when it comes to money. 1 John 3.17 says this really strong verse. 1 John 3.17, if someone has enough money to live well, and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? It's like this rhetorical question that John is writing out to the church. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? That's a strong word. That is a strong word, and it draws a line in the sand that says, your ability to demonstrate compassion to those in need is directly tied to God's love working in and through you. 
Now, we could argue that compassion doesn't always include money, and I'd be willing to admit that of course not, right? Of course, compassion includes other things besides money, but according to this scripture, in the context of this scripture, the author is talking about people who have financial wealth. The author is talking about people who have enough to live and see someone in need. So clearly, the author is also saying that it, that it takes action, that true compassion requires sacrifice from those who have. It requires a matching of faith and deeds together. Here's the beauty of compassionate and joyful giving, is that when you give with joy, when you give with compassion, it directly counteracts your love for money. Every time you give an offering, every time you tithe, every time you give a special gift, you are training and discipling your heart to love God and love others. You are teaching your heart who is in boss, Jesus or money. Every time you give, you're teaching and discipling your heart. You should also know that your generosity has a much greater impact on those around you than just impacting or just affecting today's needs. Because sacrificial and compassionate generosity changes generations. There's a trickle-down effect to your sacrificial generosity. You can't always see it right away, and, and some of you might not even know all of the stories until you're in heaven someday. But you have to realize that heaven is filled because of people's radical generosity. Heaven is filled with stories about lives that were changed because of your sacrificial generosity. I mentioned last week that in a couple of months, later this summer, our church is celebrating its 40th anniversary. And as someone who transitioned into leadership at this church, I've always been keenly aware that that God has now placed me in a position of leadership in a church that I did not build. Right? And of course, it's always God building the church. He's the head of the church, but he did that through someone who preceded me, and he did that through many of you in this room. And as I think and I pray about that, I, I'm always humbled and honored, but I, I'm compelled to keep it going. And obviously, right, like some of the decisions that we make affect our day-to-day operations. They affect what we're going to do this week or this month. But we also want to make decisions in our church that impact not only our local congregation, but our city and the world for generations to come, for generations to come. So know this morning that your sacrifice and your generosity impacts not only today, but it impacts someone's grandkids tomorrow. Your generosity today means that we are positioned to pass our faith down to the next generation and the generation after that, that we're creating space together for kids and grandkids to experience Jesus, for kids to be baptized, and for us someday to see generational baptisms of grandparents, parents, kids, and grandkids. We give so that we can dig wells in Zimbabwe on our cause wall Out in the lobby, you can see that we're feeding 2,000 kids a day in Zimbabwe, that we've dug our first well, that 10 acres of land have been donated to our work there. We dug that well not just for today. Of course it is for today, but it's also so that families can be fed for generations, so that farms can be created and sustained for generations. We give to young lives so that they can minister to teenagers. 
Because we don't know who they're going to become in 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. Or we might be celebrating a 40th anniversary this year and, and blessing God for all that he's done in our church. But we give to Young Life so that they can give to the next generation and they can minister to the next generation so that in another 40 years, we have similar stories of lives being transformed because of the gospel. I hope and I pray that you catch that vision, that when you give, you're not just giving for today, you're giving for generational impact. Again, if you want another radical generosity story from inside of our church, then you have to know that we have people inside of our church family who are designing their wills and planning their estate to tithe or to give on all that they have when they pass away so that their generosity can continue for years after they pass. Isn't that incredible? I met with one person from our church who has done this, and when I asked why, this was the response. I said, I simply want my estate to go where it would have gone had I kept living, to the nonprofits and to the organizations that I trust to continue the work of Christ. This is generational generosity at its peak, right? We might not all be called to that, but that is inspirational. That's something to aspire to. It's compassion that extends beyond one's life, and it's a legacy that will advance the kingdom for years and generations to come. You know, all of these challenges, right? All of these ways that our heart can lean towards money over love, love for ourselves, maybe money over love for others. It all draws us to kind of the pinnacle of this series. What happens when our heart chooses money over love, even for God? And that's the final point for this morning, for this entire series. Again, not very many people willingly admit they love money more than God. Not very many people are willing to admit that, but as only Jesus can do, he always knows the right word at the right time and how to draw a line in the sand, kind of confronting us with his teachings. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples this verse that just kind of resonates within my heart. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. Now, over the last 15 years in ministry, I've heard a lot of interesting interpretations about what that scripture might mean and what it might not mean, and they've all been very creative in their theological application. It's actually a pretty straightforward verse. If you love me, you'll follow me. If you love me, you'll abide in me. If you love me, you'll obey what I have taught. And that, by the way, includes his teachings on generosity. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then, then please know you're always welcome to explore Christ at our church. You're welcome to learn about Christianity and Jesus and the church by hanging with us and getting to know us. I have loved that about our church. I don't want that to ever change about our church. But if you're here, if you're a follower of Christ, you eventually have to wrestle with John, 14, or John 15, 14. Right? You eventually have to wrestle with this reality that Christ said to love me is to follow me. To love me is to obey me. Even when it comes to teachings that might be hard. Even when it comes to teachings that might stress you out or make you anxious or topics that you don't want to talk about. I feel very little pressure this morning to convince you of this. I was thinking about it on the way in. like I feel no pressure at all. I feel, I feel no pressure to preach this whatsoever. Because I, I realize I'm not going to convince you anyway. I am very content 
to just hold the scriptures like a mirror to our church and say, as we go through the scriptures together, how, how are our hearts going to respond to this? How are our hearts going to respond to, to this passage in John where he says, if you love me, you'll follow me. If you love me, you'll obey me. In order to learn from each other, you know that I interviewed a lot of people from our church who give consistently. And all the interviews were private, all the quotes have been kept anonymous, but one of the most commonly repeated ideas, I mean from multiple interviews that I had, one of the most commonly repeated ideas was that giving is a lot more like a marriage than anything else. That you commit to giving. You keep at it. You grow with it. Over time, you get better at it. When times are good, you are married to generosity. When times are tough, you're married to generosity. When you feel like it, you show it and you lavish generosity on the world around you. And when you don't feel like it, you still do it because you want that to be a part of your lifestyle in following Christ. Giving is like a marriage. I heard that over and over and over again. As I just kind of bring this whole series to a close, and particularly this message, I want to just close with just a couple of reflections. Now, I realize this morning that over the course of the last four weeks, many of you have decided to give to this church for the first time, or maybe you increased your giving. And I just want to say thank you for the way that you have responded to God. Your generosity, I've said this a couple of times, I want to reiterate it again, your generosity is a mark of your discipleship with Christ. And thank you for the ways that you've responded to his love. I also know that many of you in this room, as well as those who are viewing online, you have given consistently for years upon years upon years. Over decades, you have cultivated a generous lifestyle that has impacted hundreds, if not thousands, locally, but also internationally. And my prayers for you, among many of my prayers for you, but one of my prayers for you is that this morning you will remember why you give. That you'll remember why you give. You know, sometimes consistent givers, especially if it's like the bill pay or the automatic giving that comes out, we can sometimes forget about how we're giving. And it just becomes automatic. And on one hand, this is a beautiful reality in our own journey with Christ because it means that generosity has become part of our lifestyle. But at the same time, if we're not careful, then giving can become an obligation or giving can just be a checkbox that we check off to feel good about our little Christian selves. But I want to encourage you, remember why you give. That, that it's not an obligation, but it's a partnership with God centered on joy and discipleship, on gratitude, and ultimately on a response for all that he has done for us, for all that he has given to us. Now, someone inside of our church said it this way, the key to giving is knowing. The key to giving is knowing what God has done for us, what God has given to us, which is everything. It's everything. So remember why. Remember that he has saved us from the darkest places. He's adopted us into his family and established us in his kingdom for, forever. That as children of God, we are forgiven and set free and invited to join him in his mission of transforming all things. I pray that you will give 
and lead a life that reflects Christ's generosity to us. Remember that as we live generously back to him. Let's pray.